Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. If you're going to say that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus walked on water, that he turned water into wine, that is palpably anti-scientific. There is no evidence for that. I can make it worse for you. I know you can. Because Jesus actually came to be the Logos that created the whole universe. And if this is the creator incarnate, making water into wine and so on is really a triviality. On the 21st of October 2008, two Oxford professors, Richard Dawkins and John Lennox, met to debate God, science and atheism in front of a packed crowd at the city's Natural History Museum. In your world, where is justice Justice. to be found? Well, justice is a human construct of great importance in human affairs, and it's something that we have, most of us have a, a sense of. Uh, which I think probably can be given some sort of Darwinian explanation, but I don't see where you're taking this. What worries me is this, that can you really retain these good moral values and espouse atheism? Hard atheists like Nietzsche and Camus would say you can't. Eventually it will lead to madness. And some people are suggesting that that is actually what's going to happen. I was part of the audience for the event and had also been issued a press pass for the after-show party at a nearby Oxford college. As I left the museum to make my way there, I was surprised to find myself walking next to none other than Richard Dawkins as he pushed his bicycle to the same venue. We chatted amiably about the debate and I asked if I might be able to get a quick interview with him that I could air on my unbelievable show on Premier Christian Radio. He was a bit dubious about the concept of Christian radio, but graciously said yes. And so, with refreshments circulating and the buzz of conversation in the background, I had my own mini-debate of sorts with Richard Dawkins. Thank you for uh, the debate tonight. It was fascinating. Um, Ultimately, um, one one of the questions in press conference intrigued me. The, The chap who said, I read The God Delusion, loved every page of it, but I felt rather depressed at the end and that I should go to church. I mean, atheism is, is terribly desolate in some sense. First, I don't accept that it's bleak and, and desolate. But even if it were, so what? Why shouldn't the universe be bleak and desolate? The universe doesn't owe us comfort, it doesn't owe us consolation, it doesn't owe us happiness. If something is true, then it's true. And no amount of tattling about it being bleak and uncomfortable will make it any different from that. Dawkins was as erudite as ever as we talked about science, faith and meaning until finally our conversation turned to morality and human value and how to justify it on a purely atheistic worldview. But if we had evolved into a society where rape was considered fine, would that mean that rape is fine? 
I, I wouldn't. I don't want to answer that question. It, it's 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 enough for me to say that we live in a society where it's not considered fine. We live in a society where um, selfishness, where failure to pay your debts, failure to reciprocate favors, is 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 regarded askance. Uh, that is the society in which we live. I'm very glad. That's a value judgment. I'm very glad that I live in such it, it a society. Is, but, but when you make a value judgment, don't you immediately step yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say, there, there is the reason this is good is because it's good, and you don't well, have any um, way to stand on that but, state. But my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. On nice so therefore, it's, it's just as random, in a sense, as any product of evolution. Well, you could, you could say that. Uh, but it, it doesn't in any case, nothing about it uh, makes it more probable that there is anything supernatural. Okay, but, but ultimately your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. I, I mean, uh, you could say that, yeah, yeah. You could say that, yes. And I believe you should say that if you are a thoroughgoing atheist. Richard Dawkins was being thoroughly consistent with his naturalistic view of the world. And yet most of us recoil at the idea that our belief that rape is wrong is just the happenstance of the hand that evolution happens to have dealt us, and we could have developed a different moral code. Surely rape is wrong because it's really always wrong to treat other human beings in certain ways, not because we simply happen to have evolved that belief. As I left the party and walked out into the Oxford night, my conversation with the lead architect of the New Atheist Movement stayed with me long after the evening was over. For me, it demonstrated that, regardless of the debates on whether science has replaced the need for God or whether it was rational to believe in a virgin birth, atheism ultimately didn't satisfy the deepest sense of what it means to be human. I'm Justin Briley, and for over a decade and a half, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and why secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'll be speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to the surprising rebirth of belief in God. Episode 3, Thank God for Richard Dawkins. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. 
Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. I would like to come back to an earlier point, if Please. I may, too, and that is the notion that atheists are somehow the intelligentsia among us and so forth. I think this is just completely false. The spate of new books published by the new atheists like Harris and Hitchens and Dawkins and so forth are not sophisticated books intellectually. These are, for the most part, angry, uh, bitter diatribes against religion. And while someone like Dawkins may be a good scientist in his field, when he begins to talk about philosophy and theology, he is merely a layman. And The God Delusion is a very unsophisticated book intellectually. As a philosopher, I, I was just appalled at the arguments he gives in that book. That was the noted Christian philosopher William Lane Craig speaking on The Michael Corrin Show several years ago as part of a televised debate on new atheism and its thinkers. But it wasn't just Christian thinkers who were unsatisfied with the quality of new atheist arguments. And I have heard you say there are few things more simple than Richard Dawkins' God delusion. <laughs> yeah, no, as I said, makes me ashamed to be an atheist, I think, was the phrase I used. <laughs> this is philosopher of science Michael Roos speaking to historian John Dixon. What do you mean by that? In what way is it simple or well, simplistic? Well, I think it, it's not simple, it's simplistic. I mean, there's nothing wrong with kiss, keep it simple, stupid. I mean, one of the virtues of science is simplicity. The trouble with Dawkins, I mean... Oh, yeah, maybe this is envy. The guy sold three, three million copies of the, of the book. I mean, you know, I wish sold three million copies of one of my books. Uh, I mean, the trouble is he just doesn't take the things that he's talking about seriously. Now, the point is Christians have got some grown-up responses to these sorts of things. And I think that Dawkins does a serious misservice to the cause of non-belief by not being prepared to take seriously the kinds of things that believers believe in. I mean, so this is the point I want to make, not whether or not Christianity works. I mean, frankly, I'm not sure that it does for me, but whether or not the Christian can at least articulate a, a, a reasoned defense, which we can then argue about. And that, that's basically the, the beef I have with people like Dawkins. Michael Roos is one among a number of atheist thinkers who responded to Richard Dawkins, claiming that his response to the philosophical and theological arguments for God were too shallow and didn't take his Christian counterparts seriously enough. In fact, according to William Lane Craig, the past several decades has seen a rebirth of Christian thinkers like him making the case for God in academia. Back to his televised debate opposite atheist guest Michael Payton. There has also been, especially over the last 50 years, since the late 1960s, a, a literal revolution in my discipline, philosophy, uh, in the Anglo-American world, which has brought about a renaissance of Christian philosophy. 
such that some of our finest philosophers at our most prestigious universities are now outspoken by okay. believing Christians. Sir? Where is this uh, philosophical revolution taking place? I In the Anglo-American realm. Um, the ones dominated by uh, assume, assumed atheists like people like Iyer, um, people like Bertrand Russell, uh, who really dominated. Like, well, the, I'm sorry, I just never have what heard was the first this. Thing you said? I think you meant Ayer. Oh, Frank Ayer. But, but that's, the, that's a bygone generation, Michael. I'm talking about today. Okay, let's talk about people from today, like Quine, right? He was dead too. Well, he died only a couple of years. Like so did Freddie, yeah, but I mean... Well, well, no, let's talk Adrian. about, let's name names, people like Richard Swinburne uh, at Oxford University, uh, Robert and Marilyn Adams at Oxford, Brian Leftow at Oxford, uh, people like Alvin Planning at University of Notre Dame, Peter Van Inwagen, uh, Dallas Willard, Eleanor Stump. I mean, I could go on and on naming names at top universities in America and England who are outspoken Christians, such that the face of my discipline compared to the 1930s and 40s, when Russell and Ayer were dominant, has been utterly transformed. Dr. Greg Gansel is one of that new generation of Christian philosophers. Speaking on the Think Biblically podcast, he explains how academia has shifted in the past century. In 20th century analytic philosophy, which is the philosophy that dominates the English-speaking world, um, in the middle of the 20th century, it was dominated by a movement called logical positivism, which thought that certain questions were simply meaningless. And these were questions in philosophy of religion, but also ethics and metaphysics. Well, logical positivism um, died the death it deserved, starting probably in the 50s, um, and it left a vacuum. And all of a sudden, philosophers began to think, I can do metaphysics, I can do substantive ethics with all the tools of analytic philosophy. And all of these fields began to have their own renaissance, and one of which was philosophy of religion. And that, of course, attracted Christian thinkers into philosophy. Mm. Now, Christian thinkers don't only do philosophy of religion. Now we have them doing ethics and metaphysics and epistemology and all of these different fields. Um, so so part of what, what made the way for this was movements happening within philosophy itself. Then there were some leaders who began to attract really good graduate students, people like Alvin Plantinga, mm. Nicholas Walterstorff, William Austin, who was my uh, advisor, uh, oh, wow. Dallas Willard. Um, and, and so really smart Christians got attracted to philosophy because of people like this. And, and so it had kind of a reinforcing um, effect. And, and now I think... Um, People aren't surprised. People in the academy aren't surprised about Christian philosophy. It's just kind of part of the furniture that they encounter. But arguably, until recently, this renaissance in Christian intellectual arguments has still been largely contained within the academy, with little impact on the wider church community. So when Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists arrived in the mid-2000s with a whole bunch of awkward questions about science, history and religious belief, it found large parts of the Christian church intellectually asleep at the wheel. 
Many Christians had become more used to persuading people through experience and emotion than argument and reason. Apologetics, the Christian tradition of making an intellectual defense of faith from apologia in the Greek, had not been in vogue for many years. Bishop Robert Barron founded the Catholic apologetics ministry Word on Fire to counter new atheism and has earned himself the nickname the Bishop of Social Media after his ministry went viral on YouTube. He says an apologetic response among Catholics was long overdue. When I was a kid, you know, coming of age in the church, apologetics had a bad name. It was defensive, it was anti-Protestant, it was anti-culture or whatever. Come on, the fact that we dropped it though meant we had no weapons when a lot of our enemies came after us. Look, I don't blame the avatars of secularism for attacking religion. That's their job. So the Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harrison of the world, that's what they do. They attack religion. But I do blame us. What I mean is Catholic, sure, bishops, priests, catechists, evangelists, apologists, who I think have not risen to the challenge. And I do think sincerely, if we want to keep our young people, I know it's a complicated issue and there are a lot of reasons why they leave, and that's true. But at least part of it, if we listen to them, at least part of it is an intellectual problem. And we need to pick up our game intellectually if we're going to keep our kids. In recent years, with the four horsemen at their heels, the church has been forced to put down its tambourines and guitars and pick up its history and philosophy books again. Now the resurgence in Christian philosophy was beginning to impact people in the pews too. William Lane Craig. So back in the 1940s and 50s, there were virtually no Christian philosophers visible in the United States and books written by Christians in philosophy were virtually non-existent. Same with apologetics. All you had maybe was Cornelius Van Til and Gordon Clark back in those days. And today we are awash in apologetic materials and ministries and literature and videos and so forth. And I think this awakening among the grassroots in the churches of Christian apologetics is part of the fruit of this renaissance in Christian philosophy as it trickles down out of the ivory tower into the pews, uh, so to speak. And this is ongoing. Uh, I am very encouraged. I, I see a new generation of young Christian philosophers coming up through graduate school to take the place of the older philosophers that are retiring. Alvin Plantinga said a few years ago that he thought that the number of Christians among graduate students in philosophy was 50% greater than the number of Christian philosophers that there are today. Now, if that's even close to true, that holds great promise to the future. In my view, new atheism gave the Christian church a kick up the backside that it desperately needed and arguably the last two decades have seen the greatest revival of Christian intellectual confidence in living memory as the church has risen to the challenge. Unbelievable, the show I hosted for over 17 years, owed much of its impact to the fact it was responding to new atheism. Likewise, apologetics ministries have flourished across the world, 
organizations such as Reasonable Faith, founded by the aforementioned philosopher and formidable debater William Lane Craig, and Word on Fire, founded by Bishop Barron, have equipped a new generation of Christians with rational arguments for the reliability of scripture and the Christian worldview. In the process, a flood of apologetics books, courses and resources have been made available to churches, along with an ever-growing number of online videos, blogs and podcasts from apologists large and small. Certainly, many atheists found their voice in the early years of YouTube, with some channels growing to be enormously popular. But a young tech-savvy generation of Christian YouTubers and podcasters, such as Cameron Batuzzi of Capturing Christianity, Mike Winger, Elisa Childers, Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy, and Glenn Scrivener of Speak Life, were also growing in popularity, taking the fight directly to their online atheist counterparts. John McRae of What Do You Meme began his ministry responding to atheist memes online, now his YouTube channel has over 300,000 subscribers, and John says he's seen its impact on many individuals. Even when I was doing a lot of stuff with just the newer atheists, a lot of people were saying that, you know, this has actually opened up their mind to Christianity. They're no longer anti-Christian. You get a lot of that kind of stuff. And then a lot of people coming to Christ, understanding the um, subjective and psychological benefits of Christianity, and also understanding that Christianity could be objectively true as well. So a lot of um, people are moving now. There, It seems like the new atheists don't have as firm of a grasp on people as they once had. So it seems like we're in a new era, and I just praise God that we're able to be a part of it. Another thinker, Adam Coleman, told me it was encountering the arguments of the new atheists that propelled him towards apologetics. Just to put it bluntly, I honestly don't know where I would be if it weren't for apologetics. You know, uh, in God's providence, he gave me those resources to help me to navigate that very uh, pivotal time. Yeah. And to be honest, that's the reason why I'm so passionate about it. I really believe that apologetics is not about uh, arguing with people or getting mic drop moments online, but it really is spiritually life or death you know it really does make a difference in how we walk with god and uh just our ability to draw people um which is what god used to draw people to himself and so that put me on a path to uh start studying apologetics like hardcore man and uh yeah. you know and get going from there Adam ended up founding True ID Apologetics and, along with other thinkers such as Lisa Fields of the Jude 3 Project, has been part of a movement to answer the specific questions of African-American believers and skeptics. Yeah, I got into apologetics. I mean, I was listening to, you know, guys, you know, John Lennox, your podcast, Reed William and Craig, I mean, five hours a day, you know, I'm at my job, I'm listening to podcasts and YouTube videos. And um, I started encountering uh, a couple of questions, you know, in my own context that just weren't being tackled, you know, mm -hmm. by the uh, most of the apologetics resources that I was running into. And I never forget, I, I won't say the person's name, but I was watching somebody's uh, apologetics video. And during the Q&A, a question was asked about Egypt and, you know, slavery being taken. Uh, I mean, Christianity being taken from from Egypt and, and slavery and so on and so forth. And this particular individual didn't really have a compelling answer. And so it just kind of the light bulb went off for me that everywhere I look, I keep seeing these identity related qualms with Christianity come up and there just weren't any resources out there, you know? And so kind of prayed about it. And uh, actually, I, again, I won't say the person's name, but I was, I was writing a letter to the person um, and uh, it was going to kind of give him some tips. Of, hey man, you should cover this or you should cover that. And I got about 75% of the way through the letter. I was like, you know what, well, why don't I do it? 
you know, why don't I start a podcast? And that's kind of how True Idea was born. You know, I, I realized that there were so many things revolving around identity. Somebody needed to address it. And so uh, the real you, Imago Day, you know, which is Latin for image of God. That's, that's kind of mm-hmm. how I was born. In time, YouTube became a primary battleground for atheist and Christian debate, as many video makers on both sides grew up together, exchanging ideas and critiquing the other side. But as the new atheist rhetoric has faded from view and the movement turned in on itself, I've been struck by the way some of those who started out critiquing belief in God, in the mould of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, have themselves evolved in their own thinking and appreciation for Christianity. A prime example is Alex O'Connor. I first bumped into Alex shortly after he began an atheist YouTube channel from his bedroom as a teenager. He found rapid success with takedowns of religious videos and arguments. His channel currently stands at over half a million subscribers. Now, however, in his 20s, with a theology and philosophy degree from Oxford University and a lot more experience under his belt, he's dropped the edgy pseudonym Cosmic Skeptic that he started with and says he actually regrets some of his early embrace of new atheist-style rhetoric. I sat down with Alex in his own recording studio to talk to him about what's changed over the past few years as he enters a post-Cosmic Skeptic era. I've been following your content to sort of from early years, really. Um, and in a way, the, the move away from that name for me was part of a wider journey that I felt you've been on. Um, could you describe for me sort of what your tone, what kind of arguments you were making, what the purpose of your videos were when you started? I think it just in your sort of mid-teens, really. Yeah, I, I was kind of, in, in many ways, I was just trying to have fun on YouTube as, as a teenager. I used to make videos about skateboarding, about, I used to make guitar tutorials. And then one time I made a response video to a Jehovah's Witness cartoon made by The Watchtower. And um, it, it sort of, I posted it on Reddit and it got some popularity. And I was just kind of having fun. I mean, I did sort of also think this was like a deeply homophobic video. But, you know, I, watching that video now, it's... it's 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 always embarrassing to look at old material, but you know I'm I'm like swearing throughout it. I'm not really making like the best points mm. in the world. It, it's more just a, a a sort of a vibe. I'm just trying to sort yeah. of jibe back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it went well, and people liked it. So I made more videos like that, and started talking about philosophy of religion broadly. But it was in the context of this sort of edgy atheist thing, mm. and so the purpose was much less serious than than. The, the work that I try to do now. Now I, I consider myself as part of that group of people that like to, you know, have, they always say things like, oh, we have important conversations <laughs> or, you know, we have meaningful discussions. And, and and yeah, it's it's great to try to contribute to that kind of sphere. But there's no way I was doing that back when I was sort of 16 or 17. Yeah. I, I mean, you grew very fast. Um, you, it feels like you went from nothing to kind of suddenly hundreds of thousands of subscribers on YouTube. Something from nothing, as it were. Well, indeed. Um, but... But these were the videos were were quite sort of um, making quite sort of big claims. They they were sort of taking down big arguments in Christian theology and philosophy. What's your reflection on kind of how well you did that at at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I I I did well in the sense that well, the, the videos performed well. People seemed to like them. People seemed to get on with them. But uh, the the argumentative quality, of course, I'm I'm going to look back now and think is not very good. Um, I was I was so young. I mean, I'm still young, 
I still don't know what I'm talking about. Um, nor does anybody when it comes to these these big subjects. We can only ever try our best. But I do look back in particular at some of the videos that I made that were a little bit more serious. Mm. In particular, I think of the ontological argument video that I made. I made a video about, uh, it was responding to William Lane Craig's little cartoon on the modal ontological argument. And it's so clear listening back now that I just didn't understand the argument. Mm. And uh, fair enough, I guess I didn't at the time. That, that may have been the first time I'd encountered that version of the argument not really realizing that it was his own version. But the way I'm talking about it, having now spent more hours than anybody should ever have to talking about the ontological argument, and not just publicly, but privately too, you know, and I, I look back and I think, this is really bad. This is, I'd, I'd take it down if it weren't for the fact that I kind of want to show this progression a little bit. I was going to do a response video to it, actually, debunking myself. Responding to yourself. Yeah. Already got a bit of a problem at the moment with a reputation for going a bit soft on belief in God. I mean, we just <laughs> recorded a podcast uh, for, for my show, and, and you referenced the fact that many people seem to think I'm going to be converting to Christianity because I, I'm, so, I'm so nice to the people that I talk to. So I think a video debunking my old atheist video might might, might, might yeah, be much better. that view too but much. In yeah. that video in particular, I, I can look at it and just say I just... Yeah essentially didn't know what I was talking for me you are just someone who's growing in understanding who of us sort of believes exactly the same things we believe when we were 16 or 17 as a 20 or 30 something quite year old so that's no surprise but I'm glad you've got the intellectual humility which isn't always evident sadly in some YouTube spaces to kind of say hey got that one wrong actually my thinking's developed a bit yeah I remember us talking about this Uh, we did a show with Bishop Barron a few years Mm. ago and I remember I think you said something like that then. You said, you know, th- th- something about intellectual humility and my ability to change my mind. And I remember saying on that show, like, how how low is the bar mm. for so-called intellectual humility? If me saying, you know, the thing I said when I was a teenager, I don't think that's actually true. I think, funnily enough, I hadn't gotten right this sort of quite nuanced mm. analytical philosophical, uh, philosophical argument when I was a teenager. For somebody to say, wow, that's, you know, how how wonderful. I think it's a display of how how bad the the state of things is. To what extent, when you were in that phase, were you taking your cues from the new atheists? I know that you have always been a fan of, of Christopher Hitchens, for mm. instance. Of course, yeah. I mean, uh, stylistically, massively. Like the, the, the entire um, system of, of cutting away at beliefs, responding, identifying fallacious ways of thinking, this kind of thing is hugely influenced by that culture of new atheism. The actual beliefs themselves, or the the arguments, surely when it came to talking about creationism and evolution, if I made a video about that, then a lot of what I knew would have come from the likes of Richard Dawkins, also people like Jerry Coyne. Mm. Um, the content would have, would have mattered there. But talking about the ontological argument, for example, I, I can't really remember a time that the new atheists have, have talked about it outside of like Dawkins in The God Delusion, and mm. he makes a pretty botched job of it, I think. Um, doesn't really take it very seriously, you know, so... So the actual content itself, I think, was well, never original because everybody learned something from somewhere. The ideas always have a, a, a genesis somewhere, but uh, I, I think it was a, a sort of a mixed, a mixed bag. But the, yeah. the main influence of the New Atheist was probably in what it was that I was doing and the style in which I was doing it rather than the actual beliefs themselves.
Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or, if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or, even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book, or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. As the growth of online apologetics helped a new generation of Christians to engage the arguments of sceptics, so the rhetoric of the new atheists began to wear thin, even in a thoroughly secular popular culture. At a personal level, I began to run into more and more people who were reconsidering their own identification as atheist. In 2018, I got to know Dean, who works as a nurse in an intensive care unit in Australia. Um, I'd read a lot of Sam Harris and I'd read a lot of, and as a, as a result of reading a lot of Sam Harris, I, I, I touched on Dawkins, I touched on Hitchens, um, I read uh, Daniel Dennett. Um, I found within those uh, commentators or thinkers um, a lot of anger. I couldn't work out where that anger was coming from. I just, for some reason, I found that off-putting. I don't think that their answers satisfied me in terms of the questions that were being asked about faith and, and Christianity and the like. You know, the, the, the atheist mindset was that if you don't listen to us, then there's something wrong with you, you know, or you're inherently broken because you would even entertain the idea of something greater. I found that then a bit wrong, and as time has gone on, I found it a bit offensive because it really it shuts off the chance for deeper and satisfying conversation. Dean had begun listening to the conversations I was hosting between Christians and non-Christians, and as he did so, found a growing respect for the case for God. I think some of the best conversations that I've listened to, you're talking to um, astronomers and um, cosmologists, and you're talking about you know the, the the beginnings of the universe and how there might be an intelligent designer behind those. And I used to balk at those conversations, but now I find those conversations some of the most compelling and inspiring ones. And there's a, that, that beautiful conjunction of um, science and faith where, you know, you have these scientists that are, that are so dedicated to the method of scientific inquiry, but they're doing it with an underpinning of uh, faith as well. I'm addicted to those conversations. I, I don't consider myself to be an atheist anymore. Um, I just don't think that the atheist mindset offers an answer to the many questions that we as a human race have to contend with. The universe and the world that we live in, it's, you know, it's complexity at a, at a natural level is just, I don't think that's an accident at all. Working in an intensive care unit, Dean has always had a lot of questions around pain and suffering. But in his work as a nurse, he was also increasingly struck by the way faith made a difference to many of those he cared for. 
As a spiritually curious agnostic, he's been on a journey of exploring whether the Christian story could be true and occasionally dipping a toe in himself. I have a 13-year-old daughter who attends church regularly um, with her grandmother and um, you know, every now and then I'll go along to the church when she's uh, doing choir performance or something like that and um, or there's some other kind of special day and I, I always come away with a smile on my face because it's a it's just it's just such a lovely you know warm and welcoming community and there's no expectations put on you um, but if you delve into a deeper conversation about something it, it's just it's something that I really uh, I, I get a lot out of and I come away you know feeling full um, and I, that's something I've never got with you know, listening to a, an atheist sort of uh, conversationalist, I guess. So, Dean says he wouldn't describe himself as a Christian yet, but says that he feels he's on some kind of a journey. Well, I've, I've, um, I think I've said to you in the past that you know, look, if I'm on this journey for the rest of my life, I'm, I'm completely fine with that because um, it's a far more rewarding and compelling journey for me than to just be totally shut off from the, the possibility because being curious means that you know I want to read more I want to um, engage with ideas more uh, around you know around faith but but faith also leads you into other areas it leads you into inquiry about science and about um, art and about um, you know intellectual pursuit that's where I think faith is really powerful because it because it opens you up to all those other areas whereas I think atheism actually kind of keeps you in a box and it doesn't want to it doesn't allow you to sort of consider um, greater questions this journey is what is one that I want to be on and, and I'm really enjoying being on so it's just it's so much more rewarding for me uh, so I grew up in Bath in England in uh I think it would be called a neo-charismatic church. Journalist Ben Sixsmith is another intellectually curious agnostic. Which meant that it had a very heavy emphasis on the gifts of the spirit. So a lot of shaking and screaming and laughing and falling over. Which, if you feel the presence of those gifts, is tremendously compelling. And if you don't, it's rather less compelling. And I never really uh, felt... Uh, what, what, whatever it means to feel those things, because obviously I haven't had that experience. So it was a, a fairly alienating. Um, so when I was a slightly older teenager, I drifted away from that church kind of resentfully, and uh, there was an element of teenage rebellion mixed in there, I'm sure, because my parents were still members of that church. So I kind of took against religion in a kind of Hitchensian way. But then when I encountered serious apologetics as I got a bit older, um, I, I came to realize the intellectual depth of uh, the philosophical and um, historical arguments for God, as well as just the, the, the culture that faith has inspired. Uh, and I also had some personal problems that made me kind of appreciate uh, the emphasis on kind of order and compassion within religious traditions. So I kind of Veered back, but not all the way. I ended up in the middle. 
And as an unsatisfied agnostic, because I mean, there are various forms of agnosticism and some of them, they take the position that you can't know if there's a God. So, you know, you're quite satisfied not knowing. And then some of them, people just don't care. So they're quite satisfied being indifferent. And then I'd say um, it's an important question. And I believe it's possible to draw conclusions with a fairly high degree of confidence, even if I haven't been in the position to do it. I asked Ben why he doesn't wear the label atheist. Uh, because I find the arguments for faith compelling, uh, or at least plausible, I should say. Um, and there's so much that is not explained by atheism, you know, from the origins of anything at all to uh, consciousness, other major questions, which is not to say we should erect a kind of God of the gaps argument, but it does mean you don't want to draw a negative conclusion as well as a positive conclusion. Uh, so, yeah, there's the, the epistemic case for religion I still find plausible, if not yet convincing. For now, Ben remains a curious agnostic. I asked him what he thinks it might take to embrace faith. I've been writing a small book about uh, agnosticism, and this is definitely the hardest thing to answer in the book, because, I mean, obviously I don't really know until it happens. It's not like in science where you can be like, you know, if I do this test and this piece of paper turns blue, then X is true. Um, but I suspect it would be a kind of convergence of intellectual conviction and kind of emotional awareness if that were to take place. I've been fascinated to increasingly meet many people unconvinced by the atheist account of reality and exploring the possibility that Christianity may be true. In the case of Dean and Ben, they haven't yet found the thing that brings them across the line, but for others, they have crossed that line. Jana Harman, author of Atheists Finding God, has interviewed many ex-atheists on what their barriers to conversion were and says that the cultural atmosphere created by new atheism was certainly responsible for stopping many people taking faith seriously. About 10% had this very kind of vicious anti-theist kind of perspective. But for the, for the most part, a lot of them... Uh, it wasn't that they didn't care. They just felt a presumption that it wasn't true because the, the, the cultural message is that, you know, religion is for the weak, for uh, the weak-minded, those who need a crutch, those who need a comfort, you know, wishful thinking, again, delusion, because they don't have what it takes to get themselves through life. So there's this there's this message that's being projected to many that, that this atheistic, more scientific perspective is the more courageous, more mature, more adult-like perspective on the world, and you just need to grow up if you believe in God, you know, and get over it. So there's that kind of presumption of truth, a lack of positive messaging in the culture, a lot of negative messaging in cultural and in their authorities and in their social situations. But in some cases, the new atheists themselves have been part of the story of why some people have eventually embraced faith. Theologian scientist Alistair McGrath has compiled a number of such stories in the recent book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. 
for example, one American scientist who opens the um, conversation makes the point, actually, um, like Dawkins, he loved science, but he was just appalled by the misrepresentation of scientists we saw in Dawkins' works and also the tone of his writings. I mean, that was really quite alarming for him. Others would say that there's a real, a very real concern which made them began to have major doubts about the new atheism because it seemed on the face of it so right. And yet when they began to say you don't need religion to guarantee good science or reasonable to do this, but then Dawkins gave inconsistent accounts of how morality could be based on science or reason at various points in his work. And this particular person began to realize that Dawkins actually could not justify um, these approaches to ethics. That It was really quite a significant problem. Others made the point that actually the thing that alienated them was the tone of certainty that ran throughout these, particularly in Dawkins and Hitchens, whereas you know, it's quite clear that there were certain things we just could not know for certain. But these guys, in effect, seemed to suppress any element of ambiguity and doubt. Uh, and that made them, in effect, if I'm put like this, very simply, they stopped trusting these guys. These guys are not, in effect, giving us a, a reasonable account of the way things really are. I need to look elsewhere. One thing that stood out for many people in this collection of essays is that... Um, Dawkins failed to engage his critics properly. And the name of William Lane Craig is mentioned by several contributors who wondered why on earth Dawkins did not debate him. Because, in effect, William Lane Craig, in my view, was one of the most uh, concise, acute critics of Dawkins. And Dawkins, of course, who doesn't really know very much of philosophy, um, refused to debate him. That was seen as a kind of strength by his supporters. But I think a lot of people who were his supporters and then stopped being his supporters in fact, said, look, if you aren't going to engage your critics, informed critics particularly, then you've got something to hide. And I think we need to look at your own views rather more closely. I think that really that was a loss of confidence in the authority of these four writers who increasingly began to feel um, are, are kind of way propagating ideas without taking alternatives seriously. In episode one, we met Peter Byram, a young agnostic who was part of an effort to encourage Richard Dawkins to debate William Lane Craig and even challenged the biologist over his refusal to do so in a Q&A event where Dawkins was speaking. I would like to know why this is not an example of the new atheist doing what Lord Harry's has described as avoiding the strongest possible arguments from the opposition. OK, I thank you. That's great. Peter told me about his own journey. Having grown up in a Christian household, he had fallen away from any faith he held by his third year of university and was only further convinced by a housemate who had jettisoned his faith after reading The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. I ended up living with two of my very best friends. One of them was this friend who started with some Christian conviction and then became a full-on Dawkins atheist. The other one did not have any Christian background at all. And then he actually became a Christian. Um, he'd gone on the Alpha course and he'd gone on this spiritual search and quite dramatically became a Christian. And that was incredibly irritating at the time because I did not want to go back to even having to consider this stuff. I'd, I'd left it behind. I don't I didn't care about this Christian nonsense. Go away. I don't want it. I want to focus on, on you know, my Shakespeare and multimedia theatre and going to the pub or whatever. Um, so 
so that so that that was inconvenient in that respect in because i was now living with somebody who was a born again christian and undergoing what happens when somebody takes on christian faith but also in the other corner um i i actually had the case for atheism being made and i'm all i i'd almost think in a way if i hadn't heard the atheist case articulated saying here is a thing called atheism that you should actually consider you should actually give conscious deliberate attention to the possibility that there is no god i reckon i probably would have had a better chance of of remaining either an atheist or an agnostic because i i, I could have just sort of ignored it but this made it impossible to ignore i'm caught between both corners of both the both the extremes of the the belief spectrum so so where were your sympathies lying at this point were you somewhat persuaded by what you read in the god delusion yeah definitely yeah um no the work of people like dawkins and hitchens and so forth seemed far more plausible it seemed it, it aligned a lot more with how i felt about religious belief and um yeah no religious belief just seemed to be uh, absurd magic stuff that that fundamentalists who you know, hate gay people and want to ban condoms in Africa. And yeah, um, no, the atheist stuff was much more where I was at the time. And they resonated with the hang-ups that I had about it. As we heard in episode one, Peter went on a journey to discover that there were good Christian responses to the arguments of the new atheism. He came to believe the new atheists were strong on rhetoric, but lacking in substance. But he hadn't committed himself to Christianity. By 2011, he'd even become involved in helping to arrange a speaking and debate tour for William Lane Craig, who, with his wife Jan, was in the UK. It was this time that would prove decisive in Peter's journey. I think what was stopping me was, it was probably just trying to hang on to a certain way of life, a certain postgraduate, rather hedonistic, but kind of sort of afraid to actually do anything else kind of way of life and um, I, I just got caught into a particular way of living I think and I and I knew that I'd have to admit that my choices post-graduation will have failed I think and that all of that would need to collapse and I need to start again from scratch there was a certain humility required I suppose in in I think so going that route yeah or just um it, it's it, it's that thing about you know you try and ignore something and avoid it for as long as you can until it blow it sort of blows up um but really, so it, no, it's funny. I think as as my postgraduate life was kind of going down, the, the the being drawn to Christianity and the conviction and the 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 arguments that was kind of going in the opposite direction, um, and it just increasingly, I just increasingly had to confront that. Look, I I actually believe this, um, and there is good evidence for it. It's not what Dawkins says, which is that it's it's belief without evidence. Actually, it's trusting what the evidence shows you the evidence is there that there is a god and that and that jesus was raised you know there are good rational grounds for it but the question is do you then step onto it and trust it um and actually trust it with your life rather than being like oh that's interesting you know and kind of keeping it removed and so that's just the way things were heading yeah i think there was a particular moment and it was jan in the end who who was instrumental in helping you to sort of come to a point of decision mm. yeah i i think William Lane Craig, I think intellectually, had built me up over the course of, I don't know, maybe three years or something like that, of sort of ingesting his material and, and his debates and his lectures and that kind of stuff, and, and other apologists as well. I think they kind of built me up. And I think Jan probably just gave me that last little nudge. I, I was sat next to her at the very first event of the Reasonable Faith Tour, which is the Westminster Central Hall debate with William Lane Craig versus Stephen Law. And she was just asking curious questions about, you know, 
where, where, where I'm at and I was saying I'm not quite there. And she basically said to me, well, look, if you don't think you could give everything to Jesus, don't do it. Actually, you should not become a Christian. And William Lane Craig said a similar thing to me a bit later on, which is that he, he, they'd seen people that sort of put one foot in and sort of leave the other one out. And they basically said, actually, you'd probably be better off if you stayed an atheist because you'd just be pulled in these different directions. This involves you giving everything over. It's got to be everything. And I think I've, I've almost... I've always had a sort of personality where I either don't want to be involved in something or I'm going to be committed fully. I'm kind of not very good at doing the half-hearted stuff, so that might be part of it. But no, she, I think but by actually saying to me, look, if you can't completely commit, don't do it, it made it clearer what it was all about. You know, all the arguments and evidence are there, but then you've got to choose to actually step out and actually give everything to it. So yeah, I think Jan just gave me that last little push i think you know not, not even a push just just that little bit of consideration um that that putting up that stone in my shoe so you found yourself becoming a christian um and it's it, it has obviously been a very intellectual journey at one level and you continue to engage with intellectual issues what what would you say is the difference now for you as a christian what what difference does it has it made in your life what's what's the kind of things you can reflect on now yeah, well, it's it's huge, really, because um, it doesn't mean that everything suddenly gets better. In fact, I I was sort of hoping. In fact, if I was great, um, one of the first things that Jan told me actually was, "Oh, Peter, we can promise you pain and all sorts of difficulty." You know, um, <laughs> you're really selling it for you then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and and Bill, Bill was sat next to her, kind of going, "Oh, honey, maybe don't say that," <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, but but no, I think what it was, it, it just um, it just changes your complete frame of reference. Peter's story is one among many adult converts who have found that a compelling case for God and Christianity can be made. Jana Harmon has interviewed many former atheists on the most compelling reason that caused them to reconsider the God question. So when I, I did ask on survey, what were the more, most compelling reasons for belief? Why did you come to believe? you know, in terms of rational. And the, the most common was um, was the origin of the cosmos. Also, some were, were taken by the fine-tuning argument, you know, an argument from design, because that, that really is, when you look at the, the data, it's really, it's really hard to explain it uh, just by chance. Uh, we know, you know, Anthony Flew and others who were very high-level atheists who were convinced by those kinds of arguments. And alongside that was the evidence for the resurrection of Christ. So historical evidence, as well as scientific evidence, together, I think were the most compelling. That was the same in, in, in the, the pool of, of those 50 that I investigated as well. One of the philosophical arguments I have personally found most powerful in the case for God is the one I was debating with Richard Dawkins in Oxford at the beginning of this show when we discussed whether his atheistic worldview could account for the fact that most people believe rape is really wrong. The argument from morality holds that if such objective moral values and duties exist independent of us, then a purely materialist account of reality cannot be true. For there to be an independent realm of moral laws, there must be a moral lawgiver. 
God. It's an argument that convinced another well-known Oxford atheist, C.S. Lewis, of the existence of God almost a hundred years ago, and it continues to do so today. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker is a historian who, despite growing up in Australia, always dreamed of studying at Cambridge University. Raised in a secular environment, she assumed Christianity was just a crutch for needy people, and by the time she arrived at Cambridge University, at the age of 23, to study for a PhD, she was an atheist whose identity was also strongly shaped by her drive for academic achievement. But her time at Cambridge would prove to be a turning point. So yes, I, I saw myself as an atheist. And actually, it yeah, some of my, my first encounters with Christianity actually happened at Cambridge, um, and they actually happened through encountering the, the very people that I was studying um, for my PhD thesis, which is really interesting. So one of the things that I assumed as an atheist and, and never really delved into was this idea that Christianity was in some kind of fundamental opposition with science. And I began doing my PhD and I was really exploring quite deeply. Um, we'd now probably use the term scientist describe, to describe people like Francis Bacon and Robert Boyle, one of the founders in Boyle's case of modern chemistry. Um, but they were, they were natural philosophers, philosophers of nature. And I was really interested, I was a historian of empire and really interested in uh, the relationship between the history of science, the history of empire. And yet it soon became apparent that not only did these, Boyle and Bacon in particular, but also others, Isaac Newton, take their faith very seriously, but also that their Christian faith was really at the very core of what they were doing. And so what I had dismissed, to be honest, as intellectual window dressing was actually the more I read, for example, of Robert Boyle, the more I found him uh, a man of deep Christian faith. And this was a, a kind of pebble in my shoe, as it were. It made me, uh, it was a kind of stumbling block to my atheism. It by no means made me a Christian right then and there or anything, but it made me really need to take seriously this idea that one could be a deep intellect committed to what then is the foundation of modern science, and yet also a, a deeply theological uh, thinker and a profoundly committed Christian, in Boyle's case in particular. With these issues niggling in her mind, Sarah's academic career continued to flourish as she was elected to a junior research fellowship at Oxford University. While she was there, a set of lectures took place featuring one of the most well-known voices in ethics and philosophy, Peter Singer. Singer has long been an influential and sometimes controversial voice over questions of animal ethics and disability rights. As a critic of religion, he's often been seen as a key thinker in the new atheist movement. When he came to lecture at Oxford, Sarah went to listen. So Singer's lectures were about, um, in a nutshell, they're really about our duties to others and really grappled more deeply with the question, the kind of foundational question there, which is um, the, the value of human life. Because Singer, of course, being um, a utilitarian and also an atheist, actually pursues atheism in many ways to its kind of logical conclusion when it comes to grappling with this issue of, well, to what extent is, is human life inherently valuable? 
Singer says, well, no, there's no inherent value to human life. That's something of a kind of religious myth, a Christian fiction, which is actually entirely consistent with atheism because the ultimate, you know, the ultimate reality um, is not in any way spiritual if you were an atheist. Um, And so I actually left Singer's lectures with a kind of intellectual vertigo, as it were, because I was still an atheist and yet here was the kind of the, the leading atheist ethicist of of the time, and he was arguing uh, positions which were completely at odds with assumptions that I had kind of not really thought through, to be honest, but had always just assumed were entirely consistent with my atheism. The main one, of course, is this idea that, well, every human life is of equal moral worth and inherently precious and valuable. I'd always thought that was simply the case. And I'd also always really kind of assumed that that was something that all reasonable people would would agree upon. And yet it's very clear um, from Singer's work, and I went away from those lectures and read more about Singer and read, read, of course, Singer's work. And that is, of course, not a position which is sustained by atheism whatsoever. And so this really, in many ways, was a kind of turning point in the sense that it made me rethink whether or not atheism could actually sustain my deepest ethical convictions. This was the issue that linked my question to Dawkins about rape with Sarah's feeling of vertigo when it came to Peter Singer's atheist ethics. Can we make sense of our deepest moral beliefs in a world without God? Often there's a kind of inconsistency in the sense that on the one hand, um, Dawkins and other new atheists are committed to arguing, look, um, there is no ultimate um, morality, there's no objective truth, and yet they are, and so they shouldn't really be making any kind of moral claims. And yet on the other hand, there are often these kind of moral, yeah, highly moral claims that they want everybody to um assent to and yet they can't ground so for example i just remember um dawkins in one particular interview talked about how look you know nature is um blind pitiless and indifferent his famous um phrase there and also it's kind of red in tooth and claw but i don't want to live in a world like that um and therefore and you know there'll be to paraphrase him you know he'll encourage people to go and be kind and compassionate and so forth to one another and yet there's a kind of deep logical inconsistency there is it there because if there is no ultimate um morality and indeed if christian morality is just a fiction then the idea somehow that everybody ought to um be compassionate or loving to one another or respect each other's rights and so forth all of these things fall down It was, ironically, atheist thinkers who had planted significant doubts in Sarah's mind about whether atheism could make sense of her belief in the inherent moral value of human life. At a personal level, Sarah was also finding that, having achieved many of her dreams, a Cambridge PhD, an award-winning book, a flourishing career in academia, no matter how much she achieved, it was never enough. The questions continued to mount until one winter's day, Sarah stumbled upon some answers. I was in the college library at Wolfson at Oxford, and I'd always had had my desk, strangely enough, um, in front of the theology section, and I'd never really bothered 
to venture into that section of the library. Um, I decided to um, wander along the shelves and I picked up various books of sermons and I started to read, um, I think to be honest, I was probably, I, I didn't want to go near a Bible, but I started to read sermons. What I discovered was that I had actually never understood the old, I'd never even thought deeply about Christianity at all. And actually the theology, the actual biblical story about who God is and humanity, which is so profoundly corrupt and sinful, and who has rejected God and yet has this kind of yearning sense that this world is not ultimately what we are made for or who we are made for, started to make profound sense for me. And of course, you know, growing up as a kind of as a millennial, the concept of sin is is a difficult one to think through. And it take you take some years, right? But what those sermons and what I after that sort of started to read theology and eventually the Bible, what this started to reveal to me was that actually the Bible story about who we are and who God is and how we have sinned and rejected God and how at paying this ultimate cost, there is the perfect, actually the perfect human, Christ himself, God himself in Christ, who has actually lived the perfect life and then and then died in our place. That story, very, I mean, very slowly, made not only intellectual sense to me, but was profoundly personally compelling because it was abundantly clear that I was yearning for something that only God himself could satisfy. I, I later learned, you know, that famous line from St. Augustine that talks about our hearts being restless until they find their rest in you, Lord. That kind of sense of yearning was exactly what I was experiencing. Sarah found that her intellectual doubts about atheism led to a personal attraction towards the identity, meaning and purpose found in the Christian story, not as a refuge from reality, but as a new vision of what reality is. After moving to America for a new academic post in Florida, she describes eventually entering an Anglican church for the first time. For me, growing up in a very kind of secular society in which all things are very much kind of are very mundane. But then entering church for the first time, this was a church in which there was a liturgy and they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And I remember, because you know I'm a historian and so drawn to the profundity of all things historical and this idea that people have been uttering since Christ himself uh, utters these words, you know, this is my body you know, broken for you the people have been uttering these words, singing these psalms and these hymns for generations. There was a kind of stability and truth and groundedness there that I was yearning for, that in the outside world, in which all was kind of mundane and, and transient, that the Lord's Supper that morning invited me, not that I could take it, I'd never been baptised, but it inv there was an invitation there, which I wanted to accept, but which I... I couldn't at that point because I hadn't been baptised, that there was clearly, there was an invitation there to have a relationship with God and to be grafted into a people that was not only a horizontal kind of church across the world, but actually a people through time. And that was really profound. Anyway, it, there were you know, several kind of months of um, rather feebly kind of attending church and not knowing what all this was really all about and um, taking the catechism classes. 
um, taught very, very faithfully and hearing really good preaching and starting to read the Bible. And anyway, I was uh, just 28 when I was baptised, yeah, in Tallahassee. You can read more of both Sarah Irving Stonebreaker and Peter Byram's stories in the book Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Sarah and Peter are not the only individuals to have encountered the work of new atheism and, in the process, ironically, been pushed in the direction of investigating the evidence for God. That's why I thank God for Richard Dawkins. Admittedly, there were many who were persuaded to abandon faith, but new atheism also forced the church to gird its intellectual loins and opened up the God question for many people. Moreover, as we explored last week, as new atheism unraveled internally with infighting over the direction of the movement, it became clear that it couldn't eradicate our religious instinct to search for a story that makes sense of life. Indeed, by seeking to tear down the last vestiges of the Christian story, it swept the floor clear for many quasi-religious stories to take the stage. I don't claim that the stories of those who have found Christian faith in the wake of new atheism amount to an incoming tide of new believers, but just the existence of these intellectual seekers who found themselves surprised at the power of the Christian story to answer their questions could be the first sign of a bigger movement. As the proliferation of quasi-religious stories have generated an increasingly ugly culture war, and as we have faced a growing meaning crisis in the West, I've noticed more and more secular thinkers wondering aloud about whether we need to look again at the religious story that once gave so many people a sense of identity, meaning and purpose. You've been listening to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Patreon supporters get early access to new episodes of the podcast plus bonus content. Find out more and about other ways to support this show at justinbriley.com. Next time in Act 2. I've seen you say that you certainly live your life as though God exists. Yes, I would say, well, to the best of my ability. Mm. And I think that that's the fundamental hallmark of belief, is what, it's how you act, not right. what you say about what you think you think. What do you know about what you think? The Jordan Peterson Phenomenon. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust and Christian Evidence Society. Editing assistance by Isaac Simmons, music by Epidemic Sound. You can find links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us too. It really helps others to discover this new documentary series. Plus, you can get the next episode a week early when you support at justinbriley.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time.
Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.